Welcome entrepreneurs and startups to Art of the Kickstart, the podcast that every entrepreneur needs to listen to before you launch. I'm your host, Roy Morjan, president and founder of Inventus Partners, the world's only turnkey product launch company that has helped over 2,000 innovations successfully raise over $400 million in capital since 2010. Each week, I interview a crowdfunding success story, an inspirational entrepreneur, or a business expert in order to help you take your startup to the next level. This show would not be possible without our main sponsor, Product Hype a 300,000 member crowdfunding media site and newsletter that's generated millions of dollars in sales for over a thousand top tier projects since 2017. Check out producthype.co to subscribe to the weekly newsletter. Now let's get on with the show. Welcome to another edition of Art of the Kickstart. Today is going to be a super special episode because we are talking with the one and only Mr. Josh Smith, co-founder of End-to-End Development and someone who has just launched or worked with their 26th Kickstarter campaign. That's right, 26. Josh has been an OG of the Kickstarter community. He's been a creator since 2015. He's amassed tens of thousands of backers, helping raise over two and a half million dollars for all of his projects that he's worked on. Some of those things you've definitely seen before from his first one with the titanium hex bit driving ring to fidget spinner wallets to EDC tools and backpacks, coffee products to camera equipment. And now he's back with his 26th campaign, Alva, which already has uh, hundreds of backers midway through the campaign. So, Josh, I am super excited to have you on the show today. No, oh, thank you very much for having me. So, let's talk background. You know, what what's led you to first off becoming an entrepreneur? Sure, that's a great question. My dad, essentially, uh, growing up, my dad ran a company in the offshore oil industry. He'd worked for several companies over the years, and I guess identified areas that they weren't fulfilling, and there were, you know, they'd go out on jobs in foreign countries and there'd be requirements and things that were missing and all these little ideas formed. So he set up his own company, fulfilling those needs, designing bits and pieces to, you know, service those areas. And for me growing up, he would, you know, he'd fly off for two weeks to some far flung country that nobody that I knew would, would go to, especially not on holiday and come back with, with crazy stories of, you know, armed escorts and uh, interesting local um, roadblocks and whatnot and all these uh, all these exciting stories of the road and I saw him doing what he loved coming up with ideas putting them into practice and then directly getting feedback from the people using them now okay that's the oil industry but I thought well why don't I do something similar for what I want to do and actually I've sort of reflect on this a little bit I've kind of had my plan since I was eight years old which is kind of crazy to say that I've done most of it so I'm quite pleased with that so since eight years old, so was that kind of where the uh, the invention space kind of struck a chord with you internally? Yeah, I used to, when dad was away, I used to sort of break into the um, his workshop and make some quite dangerous things that my friends would play, friends and I would play with. And then we'd started going on skiing holidays with a family friend. And I decided that that's what I want to do. I want to do something in the ski industry, whether it's a resort rep or snowboard instructor, which I ended up becoming. And I, the plan was always do it for three years. Any two seasons anywhere, but finish in Japan and then do what dad does and start my own company. Um, and that's exactly what I did. So I, I traveled a lot all over the world, everything from 
you know, we I did a, the Mongol rally, so we drove a postal van from the UK to Mongolia, and on that trip, came up with loads of ideas for products and things, and set myself up. Stumbled across Kickstarter completely by chance. Stumbled across three D printing completely by chance, and it, you know, it, it was like someone turned a light on it, opened the doors, all these little ideas and gizmos and inventions and things that I'd thought of. It was suddenly possible, you know, because of that, the three D printer revolution should we say incredible so let's talk a little bit about your process then in terms of obviously tinkering in dad's workshop with all the dangerous things but now in terms of you know creating problem or solutions for some of the problems that you've seen in terms of traveling the world and seeing all these different things what's that process look like and how has it changed over the years now sure so a, a really good example of that uh, a project that i launched I've done two versions of called the Ultimate Lenshood. Uh, I was working in Japan in 2014, and I was in Tokyo right before the start of the winter season. And for you know, listeners that have been to Tokyo, it's an incredible city, and all of the observation towers you go up are free of charge. You can you know go up skyscrapers, and there's always an observation platform, and you get these amazing views of the city. And I'd been to several of them and the reflection from the glass, I was just ending up taking photos of myself standing in a room. Um, I couldn't actually see through the glass. And I thought, well, I'm in the biggest camera city in the world. I must be able to go and buy something to solve this. And nothing did the job how I wanted to. So I thought, well, I'll make a note of that. Um, you know, open the notes up on my phone and sketch out the ideas and think about what I want and lay it all out. And then several years passed of different projects and I'd started off small single component things and one factory and learn as you go along. And then I would got quite deep into custom 3D printers and CNC milling machine projects and it was a lot of work. I was self-assembling a lot of them and it, it was great. I learned a lot, but I wanted to pivot. I wanted a project in 20, what was it, 2018 that I you know, could jump into that was much more of my passion area, photography. And I looked at my notes app, I found the project list on there and thought, right, I'm going to tackle that one. And that project, the direct need for it was something I genuinely had. It was a problem that I'd identified that nobody was solving. And I gave it a go from there. And the development process, I kind of pride myself on doing development work as, as cheap and dirty and quick as you can, just because to get a proof of concept, you want to get it done as quickly as possible so you're not wasting time, not wasting money. And often that leads down to some pretty weird avenues. I, For that project, it was a silicon cone. Uh, but to design it initially, I used a giant cupcake mold and I cut it all apart and taped it all together and made this quite odd looking contraption. And the initial one, it worked well enough to prove to me that it was you know, the correct direction to go from. And then from there, iterate, develop, source it and, and you know, go from there. Incredible. So let's dive into how you stumbled across Kickstarter, because I think that's always unique in terms of the first time, right? Like we got introduced to Kickstarter because we rank first on Google for startup marketing. And that's how the first product ever found us. And that's how I got introduced to the platform back in 2010. So with you getting introduced to it, how did how did that you know evolve or how did you find the platform itself? Yeah, that's it. I am fifty percent sure I know the answer, and the other, and the other, I couldn't tell you for definite. The only person that I know that predates my own use of it that was even aware of it is a guy I work with, 
I worked in Dubai in the UAE for about four months teaching kids to rock climb and kayak. It was in between winter seasons and it was a great team of people. And we had a, a bar there when there were no kids on site and we'd play pool and drink beers. And I remember there was a guy that was a diver called Neil. And I, re- I do remember him showing me some Kickstarter projects on his laptop. But how we got onto the subject or why, I don't know. But the person whoever it was that showed me the platform as something that like I or anyone could do. Um, I owe that person quite a lot and I am yet to track them down because I, I, I honestly don't know how it just seemed to happen overnight. It was, it seemed to be, I'm back in the UK. I've done my three seasons. I've finished Japan, blah, blah, blah. And now I'm just going to begin. Let's do the first Kickstarter project and how that actually, the idea for that, you know, I, I don't actually know. <laughs> well, what's unique is that first product that you did, that titanium hex bit driving ring, you know, yeah. kind of fits the community extremely well in terms of products that usually see a lot of success and the makers, the tinkerers that are on the platform link, looking for what's next and what can help them improve their products or their ideas or whatever it may be. So I think that's really unique that this was your first product. Was that again by chance or did you kind of do some initial research to kind of see what the community was backing and supporting back in 2015? I will say that was by far the hardest project I've ever launched because first one, of course, um, nobody around me that had done it, no one to speak to as such. There wasn't anywhere like the community of creators there are, especially in the UK today. I chat to people all the time that are getting started or, you know, halfway through, whatever. So back then, that idea for project, the the reason for it, I'd come back to the UK and my mum and dad said to me, we're moving house. You know, you can come with us. I was, what, 18 or something at the time? Um, no, no, older than that, 21, 22 maybe? Oh, whatever. 22. And I'd come back to the UK and the plan was to stay with them temporarily and then begin. But they would moved. They were moving house. So I said, well, I'll come with you and, and help you. It was a big project. And I thought, well, there's a lot of like, this potential for ideas to come here and things to learn new skills new area whatever and it was during the house build and and doing all the little fiddly jobs that it was finding a screwdriver it was finding you know what where's that gone or little bits and pieces and at the same time I decided to start this working for myself you know avenue got lucky with rent because mum and dad as it was a the house was a complete construction site the deal was you live here for nothing but you you pitch in you help you you know you you go to the hardware store and you, you're bringing back bags of, I'm bringing back bags of concrete and I'm doing all these things and taking stuff to the to the tip and throwing you know old furniture away and all, whatever it was knocking down walls of my dad and he built an extension all of this kind of stuff so I really got involved with all of that and it sort of gave me the, the thinking time to kind of work on what I wanted to do and I'd studied kickstarter so my kind of big thing that people say to me is how do you get started with it I just say be a student of kickstarter because it is in a weird way, it's, it's a snapshot of the wider market, but it is concentrated. There is definitely a demographic of people on Kickstarter, buyers that you'll never find anywhere else. There are projects that have raised enormous amounts of money for something that you will never, ever, ever see in a retail store. It wouldn't even sell on Amazon. It's so abstract. But because it's on Kickstarter, it's new, it's unique. You've got 20 days left. It's a special price. Buy, buy, buy people think well I need it in my life and they buy it and knowing that and knowing the type of buyer and the projects they've seen the little quirky gizmos and gadgets that's why the titanium ring was the first project because it was something that was 
genuinely useful for me at home. I had a 3D printer. It was a small, easy part to design for a first project. It was quick to prototype and get the sizing right. It was a single piece of metal. It was titanium. It wasn't, there's was no assembly involved. I found a titanium factory. I spoke with them. The communication was good. They weren't happy to take the project on. There were a few challenges. Number one, they rang me at half past one in the morning once, and I thought the world had ended, but it turned out just to be a very simple question. And yeah, it, it just became the first project that seemed to fit because the filming location, the photography was on literally outside my bedroom door. The house was, you know, the place where we shot the content. There was the beach down the road for a few photos I remember getting. And that project, yeah, really was a, a, a byproduct of the environment I was in and also having studied Kickstarter and wanted to start with a small, simple one that should hopefully work. And it wasn't a particularly big campaign, but for a first one, for a first success, it was um, it was really important to get that one done. Be a student of Kickstarter. I love that because, you know, back when we were launching campaigns over a decade ago, there wasn't the real ability to kind of look and see what else was doing well or what were those tactics or what were they doing that was working well with the community. Now that there's hundreds of thousands of successful projects on the platform, oh, yes. you can really dive in, do your research and be a good student of crowdfunding and all of those psychological elements that come into running a campaign and then the supporters of those campaigns and what they look like. Absolutely. And there's a lot of projects that have not failed on, or I'm sorry, have not succeeded on Kickstarter. There's a, there's a much higher failure rate. There's also an awful lot to be learned from them. You can, if you have an idea for, a product, let's say, I don't know, it's a pair of thick socks that you can wear as shoes. That seems to be a bit of a thing on Kickstarter, a lot of shock shoe, uh, sock shoe hybrids. If you want to do a project like that, there's plenty of reference material on Kickstarter. You can look at things that have failed, have succeeded. You can look at the comments. You can look at the updates. What challenges do they have? What design direction might have been a mistake? What are the best colors? Whatever it is. So you can really dive into Kickstarter, especially nowadays, as you said, there's been so many projects and that's been great. So anytime there's a, a new idea that pops up or something that I see that I think, oh, I like that, but it could be done better. Kickstarter itself is a fantastic resource just to jump into and search around. Although I would say do it on desktop. The mobile app is not brilliant, but the desktop app you can, or the desktop website you can jump into and um, do a lot, a lot more research, a lot easier. Has your research process changed any over the years in terms of when you look at trending products or products that you have a passion around? I suppose, yes. At the core of it, the projects and products that I do for myself are always linked to my own hobbies and interests. So it's less about what's trending on the platform, but I might have seen things in the background over time. I'm always checking the app. I'm always getting the emails. And you might see things in a certain direction and start subconsciously thinking about it. The research process, typically, it should always start with, is this already been done? And if so, to what extent? Just because somebody's already done it does not mean that it's it's a bust. It means that you can't do it yourself. One of the biggest lessons I've learned is there are an awful lot of people on this planet, and you don't actually have to sell very much of something to essentially make a living. Even if there are competitor products, as long as you offer something new, or unique or a different angle or a different USP as long as your product it can emulate but it can't copy you have to have something that is your own unique hook to your product and as long as it does that and you believe in it enough 
you know, and you're not going to take a crazy financial risk, it's worth trying because Kickstarter, you know, crazy things have happened on Kickstarter and continue to happen. Absolutely. So in terms of the preparation work, marketing side of things for the campaigns that you're running now, what did that preparation or lack of preparation look like initially? And now how has that changed over the last five or six years of launching dozens of projects? Sure. Well, initially, I well, even today, I don't love sharing my projects among friends and family. I don't typically share them in my own network. Um, couple of reasons firstly you know separate business and friends and all of that it's not ideal in my you know my feeling of it um and it's lovely to have the support of friends and family but i'd rather it be organic customers that actually give proper feedback and will use the product my aunt bless her she's she's fantastic and she buys everything i launch and if i go around to her house there'll be a drawer just full of stuff she's never touched that she's bought of mine. And I think, well, like, great, I appreciate it, but I feel a bit guilty launching something. Again, knowing you'll buy it for no reason. So back in the early days, I didn't want to share my projects because, you know, you're putting yourself out there for the first time. You're saying, like, this is me trying this for the first time. I launched under my own name, which a lot of people don't do, and, you know, each to their own. Not everything I've done has been under my own name, but those first ones were. And I thought I don't particularly want to share it with, you know, friends of mine that have no idea that I'm in this direction until, you know, I, I learn the craft and I, I make a go of it. So I've been reaching out to other Kickstarter projects before cross promotions were really a thing. I'd done some Facebook groups, which they don't love for spam reasons, but it's how you approach it. If you, I find if you join a Facebook group for, let's take the titanium ring, it might have been a, a everyday carry or a DIY tools in England or America group. And you might just start asking questions. Hey, guys, you know, has anybody got um, a, a, a pocket-friendly screwdriver that they carry with them or something or something along to open the conversation and get what people are thinking, which helps the research? I'll also say, and if anybody's interested, I'd love your feedback on this. And that kind of worked in the early days before Kickstarter was perhaps as big as it is. Um, but, yeah, the first ones were a real struggle because I didn't have an organic audience. I had no idea about social media marketing, um, Facebook's ads platforms. And I've got a lot better and a lot more uh, easy to jump into. But back then, I had really no idea. So it was just reaching out to anyone and everyone for those 30 highly stressful days of the first project. And then you have the, which is now thankfully gone, but you have the paralyzing fear every day of a Kickstarter that, it's all going to end. It's all going to get cancelled or, you know, something's going to completely go wrong. Everyone's going to cancel their pledges and it's all going to go up in smoke, which doesn't happen. But yeah, those early projects were, were, were difficult. They were stressful. So how has the marketing approach changed? Because I think, you know, obviously with the first one that you launched out there, you 94 backers, which is a great start, obviously, in terms of getting a product out there and getting feedback. But now you're launching campaigns that have, you've created businesses around because they've been so successful and you've solved problems for yourself first. But obviously, there's a larger community out there that's now supporting them. How have some of the marketing tactics or pre-campaign work that you're putting in changed over the years? Sure. So essentially, the change has been that I now do it. I now do a pre-campaign. Every now and then, you just think, ah, we'll see what happens. And you just launch it, Hail Mary, and see what happens, which is quite exciting, but not not potentially brilliant for growth but a pre-launch campaign is is massive you can you can do it you can do it yourself but it's best to work with people that know what they're doing to, to you know not waste advertising money but 
whether you take four weeks, six weeks, or six months, you can start spreading the word. You get a pre-launch website. You can, you know, throw a stone. You'll hit somebody saying, "We can make your website." Be it Squarespace, Wix, whatever, and you can get going with a sign up. You sign people up to it. You get their email addresses, and on day one, those people, you send them a message and you say, "Here it is." And obviously, having done previous campaigns and offline or sales away from Kickstarter, you're always growing that audience further. But if, if it's your first project and it's a first launch, or let's say it's, it's a new brand for me, or, or it's a client project that I'm working with and they don't have an audience, we look into how we can grow the audience. We go, we make it as part of the research. We go to the people that would potentially be buying it. We get their thoughts and feedback. And they, you know, people love to love to lend a hand and love to help. And um, they often sign a email up. And if they don't buy it, they might share it, which is great. But a pre-launch campaign is massively important if you want scale and if you want the project to do well without spending a lot of money on advertising because social media adverts are great and you can run them throughout the campaign which you can and should but an organic audience a mailing list or a facebook following instagram following they are really powerful as well so josh you've raised millions of dollars on kickstarter now tell our audience some of your top tips in terms of crowdfunding product launches and how to make them successful i think if i look at the projects that (laughs) Of the ones I've launched, I've done some that have raised literally $2,000 and some that have raised $500,000. And they're not always in the order of, or the most recent was the biggest or the smallest was the first. It's, you know, experimenting, trying different things. The thing that links every project that succeeded, whether it's financial success or it's a project people love, it's it has to solve a problem. If the product itself is, I mean... Tabletop games and card games aside, because they're more about fun, but if it's a hardware project you're talking about, it has to solve a problem first and foremost. And the bigger the group of people, the better. But at the same time, focusing on a niche. So if you're looking at a a product that generally solves a problem for everybody that drives a car, that's a massive audience. But there's a lot of different tribes within the car world, people that do like this, don't like that. So it's a little bit too broad. Whereas if you specifically target people that, you know, they are, we did, I did a project with a client of mine for a tea brewing machine, and that was a very specific user, uh, target user, people that drink tea uh, and uh, live, work in an office and don't have time to brew the, boil the kettle, for example. Projects that solve a problem in your day-to-day life that also target a niche. Photography products have been great for me. There's a lot of photographers in the world. And generally speaking, other than the different brands, the the shared struggles if you like or the shared challenges tend to lead to an easier to identify audience than something that's a little bit more broad a little more general but yes regardless of that as long as it solves a problem that's your kind of that's your key hook there well josh you've uh, got your chance to pick up the litter in terms of who to work with and products to launch and you've been working with us here at inventus partners for a while now what were some of those considerations that you look at when choosing an agency to partner with uh, to be honest with you, for me, it's the same process that I use when I pick a factory, and it's it's all about communication. When things are going great and you're having the initial conversation and everything's rosy and everyone's happy, then brilliant. But you need to do a bit of a stress test to see, you know, when a tricky question's asked or if things start going wrong, how does that, how does how does that get handled? And by looking at whatever agency you're going to use. Looking at their previous projects is key. The, the information that they provide you is great. But then going and speaking to a few people, doing your own research, speaking to people that have worked with them in the past, 
be it in the last month, in the last year, five years ago, whatever. Understanding the, their full process is very important and how they do and don't do things. But for me, it's communication. If the project is you know, explained properly and the stages are, are laid out and we communicate well and they, and they respond quickly, which you guys do very quickly, You're, the app that we use is fantastic. That's, that's really, really important because it builds that trust and you know, nothing is guaranteed in crowdfunding or any business for that matter. But it's the strength of the communication between your partners that really does make a difference at the end of the day. Absolutely, Josh. Well, listen, this is going to get us into our launch round where I'm going to rapid fire some questions at you. You good to go? Good to go. So let's do this. So what truly inspired you to be an entrepreneur? Oh, it's rapid fire. Freedom. I like the freedom of it. I'm not, you know, I can do whatever I like and go wherever I like and pick my own hours. Well, speaking of freedom, if you could meet with any entrepreneur throughout history, who would it be? Oh, I don't know if he counts as an entrepreneur, but a engineer called Isambard Kingdom Brunel, Great Western Railway and the uh, Clifton Suspension Bridge. A lot of big British engineering projects at a time when they were properly groundbreaking and how on earth you have the the bravery or the, the qualifications to even tackle them would be pretty amazing. What would have been your first question for him? Why? Why would you take the, like, the things he did to find his life? That's a in terms of for me it's path of least resistance i want to enjoy what i'm doing but not work too hard and the, the trick is if you can work hard but make it look like you're not working hard that feels great whereas people like him and your elon musks of the world and all the people that are massively successful they seem just to take on the biggest challenges fathomable and come out the other side successful so it's for me i'd, I'd want to know what drives him drove him nice uh, any books that you would recommend to our entrepreneurial listeners? Uh, yes, but not what you'd be expecting. Uh, the Harry Potter audiobooks I have listened to on repeat throughout my life, not for any other reason other than the fact I can completely switch off. And actually, the, the, the mundane tasks that take time, be it editing photos, jumping into deep research, CAD design, whatever, it's a, it's a distraction for the part of your brain that doesn't want to do the work. And you look down two hours later and you, you've done a huge amount. So for me, if I need to show up and, and operate on a day, uh, a good audiobook that isn't too heavy is fantastic for that. I can switch off and I can at the same time switch on, if that makes sense. Absolutely. So what advice would you give to a new inventor or entrepreneur that's looking to launch their innovation? Know your audience, research the project. And I mean... <laughs> Nothing is guaranteed, right? But if you can limit your upfront risk, if you can develop the product or test your audience in a way that gets you the data without spending lots of you know, lots of time and resources on it, that's a great first step. At some point, you will have to take a plunge and take a risk. But as long as you've done your research and you know your market, that combined with your gut feeling that cannot you can't put a price on that that gut whatever that gut feeling is, that's generally speaking that's a good a good indicator. So, Josh, if you were to write a book about your entrepreneurial journey, what would you name it? <laughs> I have absolutely. That's a very good question. Um, oh God, I don't know. I honestly don't know. <laughs> All right. How about what's one invention that's made your life easier during the pandemic? One invention made my life easier. Oh, sat nav because I was able to get out. We were allowed in the UK to drive to the supermarket. Um, my nearest one is five minutes away 
but I would take four hours to get there by using fun roads. I would get out of the house and go and have the window down, get some fresh air, all without somehow staying within the government restrictions. So uh, I still drove to a shop, but it was just at the end of a very long road. So for me, sat-nav is critical for, has been critical for all that. All right, Josh, last question. And obviously you bring a wealth of experience to this. So very interested to hear your response to what does the future of crowdfunding look like to you? Mm, that's a very good question. I think, honestly, probably accountability. I think, as I say, I've, I've done a lot of research at the Kickstarter, watched a lot of products for a very long time. And I think there's a there's potentially to be pessimistic as a, a bit of a lack of transparency in some areas of some projects. And I think backers might not be too happy with that going forward. I think there needs to be some form of shift into, I mean, put it this way. If back in that first project that I did when I was 22 or something, and that was that titanium ring, if that had gone viral and it had raised a million dollars, 14 days after the campaign ended, I would have had a million dollars put into my, what well, minus Kickstarter's fees, but I would have had a, pretty much a million dollars put into my bank account with no, no oversight. And once you're an established business, once you know what you're doing, that's that's fine. It's cash flow. It, it is managed risk. But I think long term, there's there have been too many high profile failures on Kickstarter because things have gone wildly out of control, which is great on one hand, but on the other you know, it is stressful to sit on a lot of other people's money and need to develop the product or launch a product. So as long as you've done your research and you know what the, you know, everything about your product, who's going to make it, how long it's going to take, etc., and you've covered all those areas, you're in a very strong position, but just don't rush it because this is, Kickstarter is a bit of a gift in that respect because there's, there's no other institution or no other way that you'd get that many orders up front without any oversight. And I think going forward, accountability and some form of, if not regulation, control will probably have to come in to give backers the confidence long term. Because I think people are getting a little bit sick, a little bit frustrated of, you know, delays, for example. Yeah, I can only imagine. Well, Josh, this has been truly inspirational. And I know our audience is going to love this. I know we didn't even talk that much about your current campaign, Alva, that's active on Kickstarter right now. But this is your chance to give our audience your pitch, tell people what you're all about, where they should go, and why they should check you out. Oh, well, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, so Alva is a project that I came up with in 2017. I was, at the time, spending all of my time in the office, Monday through Sunday, every single day, every single week. And I needed to get out of the office. So I went and got a part-time job at a movie theatre and loved it because I got to see free movies and the people I met were a good laugh. And while doing it, as with all things in my life, I'm always looking for product opportunities and ideas. And I came up with the idea of a wearable torch, something that, you know, the amount of people that would lose their phones and wallets and keys in cinemas and the lights were never bright enough to get right in behind the seats. So a wearable torch meant that I never left it lying around and no colleague ever borrowed it. And fast forward to 2019, I, had, I was in the position with the contacts and the factories, et cetera, that I wanted to make the product a reality. And I think, honestly, it's in terms of the product, it's the best thing I've ever launched, best thing I've ever been involved in designing. I'm very excited about it for the future. Kickstarter at the moment is, is tricky. We A lot of people know about the iOS changes and the, the, the ad landscape is harder than it has been in the past. With all that said, Alva, if you're interested in running, cycling, hiking, any form of DOI or maintenance work on your car, a wrist wearable torch is a game changer. And I'm really excited for people to get using them and get them out there. So 
check the campaign out. Any questions or comments, let me know. And um, yeah, love to have you on board. Beautiful. Well, Josh, this has been amazing. Audience, thank you again for tuning in. Make sure to visit artofthekickstart.com for the notes, the transcript, links to Josh's current campaign and all the other things we talked about today. And of course, I got to shout out our crowdfunding podcast sponsors at The Gadget Flow and Product Type. Mr. Josh Smith, thank you so much for joining us today on Art of the Kickstart. Thanks, Roy. Really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to another amazing episode of Art of the Kickstart, the show about building a better business, world, and life with crowdfunding. If you've enjoyed today's episode, show us some love by giving us a great rating on your favorite listening station. And of course, make sure to visit artofthekickstart.com for all the previous episodes. And if you need some help, that's what we're here for. Make sure to send me an email to info at artofthekickstart.com. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you on the next episode.